Good morning. I am so happy to be here with you again this morning. Look forward to sharing what the Lord has given me as I've studied this passage. So uh, I'm going to start with uh, a summation of the Bible Project's overview of Philippians. If you haven't watched that yet, do. I highly recommend it. It's nine minutes, but it's worth nine minutes of your time. So Tim's view is that the hub of this letter is the Jesus hymn that focuses on Jesus's story from pre-creation to his exaltation. Because This isn't so much of a linear letter as some of Paul's are. And then the whole message of the letter is how Paul sees himself and the church as participating in Jesus' story. Then different parts of the letter connect back to the hub as if you know the poem were a wheel, the, the hub of the wheel, and then we've got spokes. So different parts connect back. So first Paul greets the Philippians, tells them how he prays for them, and reminds them that they are participants in the story with him. Next he speaks of his current situation and, and then we see how he's participating in the suffering of Jesus' story. And then he exhorts the Philippians to live worthily as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, that others might know that they are participating in Jesus' story. And now, where we are, Paul is presenting two more examples besides Jesus and himself of brothers who are actively participating in Jesus' story for the glory of God. So I'm going to read 19. I'm going to stop at 25a. So if you want to read with me, feel free. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it go will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So, here we see Paul's main concern, and thus the purpose for the letter. He is concerned for the progress of the gospel in Philippi. Epaphroditus has brought, apparently, money, supplies for Paul while he's in prison, as well as the message that there's dissension in the Philippian congregation. He either got sick along the way or after he arrived, and, and somehow the Philippian church got word of his illness and became concerned. And then that would mean that someone knew about that and then went back to Philippi to report and then came back to Paul or sent someone else back. So all this going back and forth, it takes, you know, weeks. So then Paul sent Epaphroditus back carrying this letter. After Paul receives his verdict from Caesar, he will send Timothy, who has already been to Philippi a couple of times with Paul, to report the verdict so they'll know in Philippi, and then he will return to Paul to give him an update on how his letter was received and whether they are acting on his counsel. Finally, Paul himself will make his way to Philippi if he is indeed released. So that's what we get here 
in this passage. So let's get into it. And I, uh, I gave credit to uh, Dennis Johnson for this great outline. As I looked through all of the commentaries, I thought, oh, this is a really great way to, to break down this passage for us. So first, we're actually going to look at Paul because he starts in 19 with, I hope in the Lord Jesus. And then we see again in 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. So we see right here that Paul himself is a submissive servant of Jesus. You'll recall, and we'll, we'll talk about it more in chapter 3, that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees when he was blindsided by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Syria to persecute Christians. And then according to Galatians 1, 18 through 2, 2a, he went to be alone with Jesus for three years before going to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James for about 15 days, James the brother of the Lord. After that, he spent 14 years in Syria, in Cilicia, and then he received apparently a revelation. Barnabas came and got him and took him then to Jerusalem to meet with the um, with the disciples again. So Paul spent a lot of time relearning the Old Testament from Jesus and learning how to live as a Christian. He had come to understand the Lord's sovereignty. This is a man who knows that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. And I don't know about you, but I thought of the verse in James, James 4:15, where James admonishes us to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. In Acts 16, after Paul picked up Timothy, we learn that Paul was in Asia in his, in his group and intended to go farther north and east, but the Holy Spirit stopped him. In a vision, Paul saw a man from Macedonia calling to them for help. And so they headed north and west instead of east, where they met up with the Philippians and started the first church in Europe. Paul understood that God was sovereignly directing his life. That didn't mean that Paul was a passive robot. <coughs> he was, however, sensitive to God's communication with him. I'm going to just give you a little personal example so I came home from uh, graduate school, and uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to be a professor because I had started a PhD in Russian linguistics, of all things. Who cares about that? So I came home and didn't really know what I'd do. So I actually had begun to feel maybe a call to the mission field, but if you realize well, most of you won't, some of you will, that this was still kind of a dangerous time to think about going to a Russian-speaking place, 1987. But I, I applied to Wheaton College, got accepted into a, a, you know, like a cultural or missionary type master's program. And then there is a, an organization there in Chicago called the Slavic Gospel Association. And I applied with them and was accepted with them to go do clandestine work somewhere over there. Well, but then there was this guy at church that everybody wanted me to meet. And I mean, I wanted to be married, 
you know, that was part of the plan too. But I didn't know, so I'm just making plans, right? And well, it ended up becoming clear to me tonight that I should marry this man. And so God changed my direction. And I wouldn't learn for another couple of years what all God might have had in mind by keeping me away from Chicago and the, and the Soviet Union. But in um, 1988, early 89, a lot of refugees from the former Soviet Union started coming in. World Relief brought many here to the mid-cities and they found me totally by God's providence. That's another, that's another story. And I was here to help get these people settled in because they knew no English and they had nothing. And how many people had just returned from graduate school in Russian? <laughs> Not many. They, they had found two Polish people who reluctantly spoke Russian when they lived in Poland. You know, and then there was, a, there was a professor at UTA that they found, but she was kind of busy. And then there was another woman that had gotten a master's in Russian like 20 years before me or something like that. So I, I was it. <laughs> and, and through that opportunity, God helped me improve my Russian skills, because Russian's hard, y'all, really hard. With a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, I felt useless. But I was the only one that these people had, one of the very few anyway. And he, he used me to help them get settled. So he could have not used me, but he did. And then it helped improve my skills for later on in my life. So, you never know. We can make our plans, but God establishes our steps. Next, we're going to dive into Timothy here. So, we first meet Timothy in Acts 16. He's from Lystra, a city Paul visited on his first missionary journey. Timothy's mother, a Jewess, and grandmother became followers of Jesus through Paul's proclamation of the gospel. And then when Paul returned to Lystra on his second journey, he learned that young Timothy had become a strong disciple of Jesus. And Paul was so impressed with him that he asked Timothy to accompany him and learn of him. Because Timothy's father was a Greek pagan, he had not been circumcised. So before Paul felt comfortable taking Timothy around to synagogues with him, he circumcised it. And Paul describes Timothy as a like-souled son. You know, this is reflecting back, this like-souled like word is reflecting back on 127 and 2-2, where Paul talks about having one mind, be, being with one mind, the Philippians, and then being of the same mind with Jesus. Timothy is serving with Paul, and that reflects back on Jesus taking the form of a servant in 2-7. And uh, recall also the, the opening address, the greeting. Paul calls himself and Timothy bondservants or slaves of Jesus, the same word used of Jesus in 2-7. Timothy, in verse 20, it says, is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. Again, he's been there. He knows them. They know him. And he is concerned for them and for their growth. In verse 21, Paul tells us that Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus. 
He doesn't only seek the interest of the Philippians above himself, but he seeks the interests of Jesus above the Philippians' interests, above his own interests. All the others, or at least many others, what Paul knows, maybe they're, they're in Rome, perhaps, seek after their own interests, it says, like in 115. He's exhorted the Philippians not to do this themselves in 2.4, but Timothy's eyes and heart are on Jesus. I put a quote for you on uh, the back page of uh, Mother Teresa. This is in a book I have I'm reading currently called Mansions of the Heart by Thomas Ashbrook. Mother Teresa of Calcutta was being interviewed by a reporter who said he admired her passion for the poor. She replied that she had no passion for the poor. In response to the reporter's puzzled look, she explained that her passion was for Jesus. He has a passion for the poor. And so she served the poor. That's Timothy. That was Paul. That was Jesus. Next, Epaphroditus. Let's read. <clears throat> I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We only meet Epaphroditus here, and Paul commends him highly, calling him my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. And then he reminds the Philippians that he's your messenger and your minister to me. And we learn that on, on his way, like I said, either on his way or perhaps right after he arrived or something we don't really know exactly, he came close to death. He grew very ill on this long journey. I thought of Luke 14. Do you remember Luke? We did that, uh, what, 2019, 2020, ages ago it seems like. Starting in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This was Epaphroditus. He left his home, and we don't know if he was married, but it's likely, I guess. We don't know if he had kids, but perhaps. But he left, and he took great risk to get this gift to Paul, who was proclaiming God's kingdom throughout the earth. Paul says people like him should be honored. Perhaps the Philippians had you know, having heard of his illness, we're thinking, oh gosh, why did we choose him? He's been sickly, or 
we we were wondering if Epaphroditus could be counted on. Paul has to have this stuff. You know, we we don't know, but something prompted this commendation by Paul. People like him should be honored, not viewed as holier than thou or as fanatical. We need to guard against judging people's motives or abilities. Maybe that's what they were doing. I don't know. We don't know. We can't know that for sure. But Paul commends Epaphroditus for his service. So, becoming like Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul as participants in God's story, that's what, that's what this passage is, is calling us to do. God rescued you because he delighted in you. Psalm 18, 19. He wants you to participate in his story of the rescue of all nations back to back into his family. Most of us are worker bees like Epaphroditus. We get the communion stuff ready, we greet visitors as they come in, we do the sound, we teach the kids, we serve asylum seekers or girls that have been removed from the slave trade. Most of us are worker bees like Epaphroditus, but we're still worker bees. Some are like Timothy, a church planter, mentored by an apostle. Under shepherds, like Brian, like our elders, like women's ministers or children's ministers, kind of like under shepherds, under the great shepherd. Some are eyes, others are ears, still others are hands, others are feet. God uses human beings to rescue human beings, although he could just say the word and change it all. We are to look to Jesus, to Paul, to Timothy, to Epaphroditus, to those around us in our church family, to see the pattern to follow, the pattern of putting the interests of the gospel of the kingdom above all else. But there's more. God rescued you also because he wants you to know, along with all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth of his love for you in Jesus. That's from Ephesians 3. He wants you to love him with all that you are and have. He wants, you to, be, he wants to be in union with you individually as well as the whole church communally, comparable to the union represented by a marriage between a man and a woman. Out of this experience of union with God comes a, profound, a love so profound that it pours out onto your neighbors so that you are, in a sense, Jesus loving that person, like Mother Teresa so eloquently stated. Another Teresa, 16th century nun, Teresa of Avila, thought that as we mature in the Christian life, we become like Mary and Martha in the same person. We take time to sit at Jesus' feet, to bask in his love, 
to learn from him how to be fully human. Then we rise up and get busy with our day, loving and serving our neighbors with love that we have experienced, that God has worked into us. This is how Jesus lived his life. Some of you may be thinking now, good grief, I have such a long way to go. Sometimes I think I love God. Other times I still seem like such a wretch. <laughs> How can I know where I am on this journey and not lose hope that God will complete his work in me? Good news. Teresa of Avila, better than almost anyone else, wrote about the process of growth in Christ. She delineated seven stages which she, as a 16th century woman, likened to rooms or mansion in the castle of our soul. Now, her, her stages are a guide, not a rule. It's about the whole, not just the parts. It's a description, not a prescription. It's God's work, not ours. Again, I'm, I'm getting this from that book I'm reading uh, by Thomas Ashbrook. Mansions of the heart. I didn't write these stages down for you, so if you want to write them down for yourself, you can, if I say them slowly enough. The first stage, after being a lost person, is you give your life to Christ, which, of course, is God's opening our eyes and giving us a new fleshly heart, replacing the heart of stone. First stage, new beginnings, it's called, new beginnings. You're in love with Jesus, you begin to pray, you read his word, you fellowship and worship in church, and you're excited. And then as you grow, you come to stage two, the second stage, which Ashbrook calls between a rock and a hard place. You think, oh my goodness, I am still so sinful. How is that possible? I still wanna, I still wanna, I don't know, sleep with my boyfriend. I still want to go get drunk with my friends. I, you know, I'm still pretty selfish and I'm still tempted to do this and that. And you wonder if, did I really actually make a decision to follow Jesus? You begin to struggle. The struggle's real. And you're still, you're still in it. You're still on the journey. Second stage, a uh, third stage, sorry. Following Jesus. It's called following Jesus. This is probably the stage where most Christians stay, which is, which is fine. If you're, if you're in stage one, two, and three, you're still on the road, and you're still learning to love Jesus, and you're serving him. But then we go on. The fourth stage is called discovering the love of Jesus. This is where you begin to sense more, whether it's just inside or in the word or in things that happen or out in nature. You begin to sense more that God loves you. And you begin to be drawn to spend more time with him. The fifth stage is called longing for oneness with God. Longing for oneness with God. Now you're hungering and thirsting to have more time with him, to know him, 
and to be known by him. You begin to prioritize your days a little better. Get up, get up an hour before the kids get up if you can because you have to have that time alone. You go somewhere off from your colleagues at lunchtime just to have time alone or, or something, something like that. When the kids are napping, you just run into the prayer closet and take those few moments or something. You prioritize times to be alone because you're so, to be alone because you're so hungry. The sixth stage, the passion of God's love. The passion of God's love. This is where, well, it may actually happen in the fifth stage, but at this stage for sure, you feel like you are God's betrothed. You know his love for you, and you are experiencing that more and more, and still want even more. The seventh and final stage is a life of love in the Trinity. A life of love in the Trinity. This is the life of complete union that God wants to have with us individually and as a people. Comparable, this is marriage is this metaphor of a union of God with his people. Each stage also has different rooms, which I totally won't get into because there's not enough time. This isn't a linear path, but an upward and inward progression. You can go back and forth. You may, you may think through these stages and you'll realize, oh gosh, I thought I was in three, but now I think I'm back in two and what's going on? And it, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. It is a good thing to have an idea of where we are on the journey so that we don't lose heart, so that we can encourage one another. And pray for one another. I tell you, I see wonderful things happening in our church. God is surely using us in Fort Worth and around the world to bring honor to him. My prayer for us, for Trinity Presbyterian Church, as the years go on, is that we would be radically transformed by the love of God for us individually and corporately so that our neighbors will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. I've included a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem on the back from which I, I took the, um, the fourth outline uh, quote there, which I got from Eugene Peterson's book of the same title. Let me read it, because you have to read it aloud. But what you'll, what you'll hear and see are things, creatures in creation, living out who they are and enjoying life that God has given. Listen, and then I printed it out for you so you can read it again and again. Take a cup of tea or something. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring like tucked string tells. Each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. 
Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his graces, goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our dearest Father, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for your precious son who took the form of a slave, a lowly human being, and who conformed his will completely to your will by the power of the Spirit in him, with whom we are also empowered. And he went all the way to death on a torturous cross for us to reconcile us to yourself, to cleanse us of our rebellion, that we might be exalted to your presence along with him. Oh, teach us. Oh, draw us. Would you? Father, Son, Spirit, would you go with these women as they go to their groups and discuss this passage in greater depth. May they feel safety to be vulnerable with one another so that we can all grow into the maturity that you want us to reach. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Okay.